Let me see. I was streaming. There we go. Okay, so we are live. Um, thanks for joining back to the channel, everybody. Um, today I have a very special guest, former candidate of the Libertarian Party nomination for president in 2016, former Republican candidate for Senate in 2018 for the state of Missouri, and current host of the KWS Morning Show in Jefferson, Missouri. Welcome, Austin Peterson. Sarah, nice to see you in person. Thank you for having me on your show. I know, right? Thank you for joining. Yeah, I know, because we... I've been on your show quite a few times now. So about what, four times? You have. Yeah, it, it's, you have become a subject of much interest and discussion amongst uh, my bosses and my colleagues over at Conservative Talk Radio, because um, basically, like, you know, we're def by having you on, you know, with your ideological perspective on Conservative Talk Radio, we're kind of like defying expectations and we're like making people have conversations that were already uncomfortable, even more uncomfortable, which is which is great. <laughs> yeah, those are those are always always fun to have, and especially like you said, I mean, there are a few of us out there that kind of defy what the natural laws of politics are, right? For sure, right? So, like you know, we definitely don't fall into the same kind of left right mentality that most people fall into, right? Right. Yeah, and so we had this. Uh, the idea to do this show last week um i had just come onto your show um and the segment before i was on was with gary nolan right it was yes it was what some people were calling a cringe fest cringe tastic cringe topia cringe horrific it was yeah. <laughs> cringe was the key word i think people said yeah. yes because <laughs> Um, you were talking about Caitlyn Jenner, and that was also why I was coming on. Um, and he just dove right in on you for calling Caitlyn Jenner she, you know, using Ooh. proper pronouns and using proper name instead of calling her Bruce and stuff like that. And it was interesting to me. I think you called him an OK Boomer at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that, that really made him mad, too. We got some hate mail from that one. That was good. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then me and you actually went on to have an even deeper discussion after I listened to the after I listened to the show over text message. And then later that night, you tweeted out, what was it? Libertarians can't win because they don't know how to positively affect culture. But then you signed it. People with animated avatars. So I was just <laughs> joking. I said, you didn't have to uh, subtweet our conversation like that. Um, and we know Twitter is an awful medium for having these types of discussions so i said i have a youtube channel why don't we do this discussion and really talk about how we can positively affect culture how do we win as libertarians how do we how does our movement move forward like some people uh jack hunter and i were kind of you know having a little back and forth on twitter some people see the libertarian movement as winning for example uh last night um the i can pull this up actually from my verified tweets here Jack Hunter says, I would argue that the Paul's movement, uh, the Paul movement's impact is still wide and strong. GOP leaders like Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, and Nancy Mace did not exist other than Ron himself prior to 2008. YA Liberty is the largest center-right youth activist org in America. And how do Republicans talk about foreign policy now? He makes a good point there. 
And he continues and said, I would also add the drug war, criminal justice reform and civil liberties in general, which McCain shook his head at are now standard conservative fare. It might not be as sexy right now, but that's because we've been successful for so long at this point. Um, and some people agree with that and some people disagree with that. So perhaps on a policy perspective, on a wider, longer timeline, you might be able to say, you know, certain uh, libertarian policy goals are being met, right? But, you know, uh, culturally, you know, when you ask people, I think if you were to ask people, a broad range of people who are, you know, perhaps somewhat or even somewhat aware what their impression of libertarians is, it very, it's a negative view, but it depends on their particular perspective as to why they see libertarians, you know, negatively based on whatever their tribal circumstances happen to be. So if they're on the left, they're going to hate us because of, you know, we believe in free markets and, you know, uh, limited government. But if you're on the right, then they're going to hate us because, you know, you and I are capable of having a conversation without me looking at you in disgust and sneering at your, you know, at your lifestyle, perhaps. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. it depends on their perspective as to why they have a negative impression of libertarians. But then there also is, and I think, you know, most libertarians would agree there is, you know, uh, there is a kind of a willful negative perception that some people, some libertarians have because of the desire to be counterculture, right? Like you don't want to fit in. I don't need to be cool. I don't have, you know, where I was libertarian before it was cool. If it becomes popular, then it's no longer, you know, if it becomes mainstream, then it's no longer my little personal private band. You know, I loved Jimmy Eat World before they became big, you know. So that's that's kind of like a hipster. We've called that hipstertarianism. Murray Rothbard talked about that in the 70s. He called them Luftmenschen, right? The countercultural desire, which is like no problem with living countercultural. But like, I think sometimes people confuse like a desire to win in like politics proper as like, you know, you know, applying the wrong tactics in the wrong places. But I mean, you know, I mean, again, libertarian is do what you want. I just... You know, I do think that um, sometimes we, you know, we, we don't all work together very well. And in order for us to affect change on a larger level, I mean, you could say all day long, you know, well, you have to be the change, live the change yourself. Okay, but, you know, unless you're willing to go out and live in the woods and be Amish, you know, like completely individualistic, atomistic lifestyle is really not what most libertarians are all about. We live in the suburbs and most of us actually live in pretty big cities, to be quite honest. So, yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah, a lot of us live. I mean, I consider like Atlanta is a very libertarian city. I mean, everybody carries a gun. We're very open about everything else, you know, but we mm -hmm. other than the other than this um, economic policies here, I mean, fairly, fairly liberal, but we are in a red state right now. But how long is it going to be a red state, too? I think that's a big issue as well, because right now we see we see people like Caitlyn Jenner pushes all the wrong, all the right buttons on all the right people right it pushes the buttons and it shows the social conservatives like they, they get heated about it and then you know the liberals hate her because she's not the right type of trans so and they, and they debunk or she debunks their stereotype right so the gop though has been i mean they've always had this kind of issue as well where they like to they try to push people away right so um, Carlin Borisenko is one of the people that she's a liberal. She's an admitted liberal. Um, she was part of the walkaway movement, supported Donald Trump in 2016 and 2018. And now she's getting hate from the right and basically being told, we don't want you. Um, and I think 
the Libertarian Party has the same issue when you're talking. They've been going after, you know, Rand Paul supporters and saying, we don't want people like you. If you don't support our movement, we don't want people like you in it. Like they've almost become just another version of the duopoly when it comes to like that, their party, but yet they're in the, and they'll push people away. That's, that's kind of why I, I used to say that like the Libertarian Party has all of the same problems as the major parties with none of the upside, right? That it, it has all of the same tribal issues that the Republican and the Democratic Party have without the benefit of actually winning elections. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They, it, it very much is. Like the, I think the hardest part for Libertarians to get behind a movement like the Libertarian Party is parties kind of go against our way of being so why are i don't want to join a party per se you know as a libertarian because i don't believe in every single doctrine that they believe in and they believe that once they get into power then you're going to be you know you're going to be tribalistic of it you know you're going to be and the right has moved more into that direction i mean i've put my faith in some people like i was a big ted cruz supporter i was a big um dan crenshaw supporter i thought they were more libertarian based and then they fell in line with trump so you know they voted on big budgets it's it's almost tiring to watch all these politicians that you think are great i mean we have a couple like massey and paul um and even justin mosh um for the most part um but it's it's frustrating and you know i was one of the tea party people as well so you see them gain power and then don't do anything with it uh, so right, so there, there's like, you know, politicians kind of respond to incentives, I think, to a degree. And, uh, you know, sometimes like neoconservatives will talk about foreign policy in regards like in, in the, the context of sticks and carrots, right? Like you, um, you get, you know, someone, an adversary to do what you want them to do by beating them with a stick and then offering them a carrot, right? So when they do something you like, then you offer them a carrot. When they do something you don't like, then you beat them with a stick. And I mean, I think politicians can, you could think of that, you know, your strategy towards getting politicians to do what you want in a similar way. I believe that if libertarians had exerted ourselves properly as we kind of built towards our zenith of that libertarian moment, you know, towards 2015, 2016, that if we had capitalized on the popularity of those Tea Party ideas appropriately and made the right strategies, a little bit of luck here and there would have been useful, then the politicians, they would have supported what we believe because they would have thought that this is where the culture is going. In order for me to get elected, I have to support libertarian ideas. And the reason I think that is because when I worked at the Fox Business Network, the politicians that were there, as the Tea Party was ascendant, um, and the Tea Party ideas were what to be, you know, we had the Tea Party show, Freedom Watch with Judge Napolitano. And everybody was bending over backwards to kiss our butts. Everybody wanted to be on our show. Everybody was talking about our ideas and our show and our, and the judges, you know, they wanted to talk about, um, you know, uh, you know, the federal, you know, Sarah Palin came on the show and we talked about the federal reserve for God's sake, Sarah Palin talking about monetary policy. Yeah. You don't see that anymore because I think the politicians recognize rightly, sadly, that our ideas are no longer ascendant, no longer, um, uh, no longer in vogue. And therefore they, you know, politicians who might've been squishy before are going to go for MAGA. I, 
ideals. They're going to go to, they're going to join the MAGA tribe because they see this is what the, the culture heads is heading towards. So they're going to pander to those ideas in order to get elected. So if yeah. we as libertarians were solidified, unified, more, a more powerful political force to be taken seriously, and that then we could operate on a sticks and carrots basis and the politicians yeah. would, would be more willing to adhere to our ideas and be more and be more afraid of contradicting mm -hmm. us in our ideas, voting against our ideas, because they would know that if they did, there would be some kind of a repercussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's true. I think like the GOP, they think the GOP thinks they own the libertarian vote if there's no libertarian candidate as well. Correct. Um, but so does the left. The left does, too. For example, like the, they, they were they acted very entitled you know, for the Hillary, you know, the Hillary Clinton supporters, you know, they were, mm -hmm. you know, they're every four years, the liberals write a piece on MSNBC about why the libertarians should really be supporting them. And they trot yeah. out some libertarian collaborationist who's willing to be like, you know, there were libertarians for Biden in the last election. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah, that's true. Well, and that was the thing is when I looked at um, the Senate race here in Georgia, for example, um, the only reason why David Perdue even made it to a runoff was because of Shane Hazel and the Republicans are going to blame Shane for sending it to a runoff. But when you look at the data, Shane pulled more, more votes than Joe Jorgensen did. And Joe Biden won the state. Really? Yes. So when he pulled, I think, I think he pulled three or 4%. She only pulled 1.3%. And oh. so when you look at that and you see Joe Biden won the state and then you see, um, Senator Perdue was it was a very close race. Well, I could have told any any anybody that really could look at the data knew that he didn't have the libertarian vote in that. Shane pulled more liberal vote than 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 uh, Jorgensen did, and the thing is is the reason why that happened is because David Perdue like the GOP doesn't understand how to court libertarian voters. He was supposed to go on Shane's podcast to give his perspective to libertarian voters and, oh, he, and bailed, he didn't he bailed on it i remember yeah. that i remember so that that hurt him a lot i think because libertarians won't vote like if they if they don't find somebody in the race they just won't vote sometimes you know True, we don't like voting the lesser of two evils sometimes but, but unfortunately like, i think sometimes like your libertarians were not very good at looking at things from the other person's perspective and understanding kind of like why would they do something like that so do you do you remember what the, I now I'm starting to remember a little bit closer now. Do you remember why that politician said David Perdue or whoever it was? Yep. Do you remember why he said he backed out? You know, like it, do you because remember? yeah, because Rand Paul went on his show, um, went on went on uh, Shane Hazel's show, and then um, the conversation that they had led Purdue to say, well, there's no point in me coming on here if you're not even going to listen to my ideas or something like that. It was something to, along those yeah, lines. Exactly. And, and so, but I mean, that's a good point, right? Like, mm -hmm. here, and here's the thing. So it's like, he, you know, you may think that he, he was harmed more for doing that than benefited for doing that. But you have to understand he saw it in his best interests not to do that because Shane was being undiplomatic. And, you know, diplomacy is an important part of libertarian policy and here's the thing, how can you have a libertarian form of foreign policy at all? If your foreign policy is libertarianism is just leave everybody in the world alone. Need I remind you, the world will not leave you alone. You know, even if, you know, unless you're a complete anarchist that believes, you know, doesn't even believe in the concept of the United States at all whatsoever, um, you know, then that's just a completely different discussion. 
But if you believe in a country and having libertarian policies, you know, governing that country, then you're going to have to have diplomacy, yeah. which requires you to act diplomatically in a way so as to make more friends than enemies. I'm not saying I'm perfect at that, by the way, because I certainly have made have have been a hypocrite on that issue in many times and have made more enemies than I've made friends. And I learned my lessons from that, which is why I can speak to it because I can I know from experience, dude, um, what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I know, I, you know, I more know what doesn't work than I, than I know what does work because of my failures in the past. So, you know, yeah. failure is the best teacher quite frequently. It would have been, I think, good for Shane to be diplomatic in such a way so as to not burn a bridge with Rand Paul and to not burn a bridge with that senator. And in my opinion, not screw the rest of us all over by, you know, walking away from it in such a way, throwing up hands and walking away, such as that now we have, you know, teetering on the balance of, you know, the left taking over, which I know that's an entire another discussion yeah. entirely, but... You know, for me, it's just, you know, it's fine to be selfish, but it doesn't mean I can't say that you're not a butthead for being selfish, right? That's true. That's true. I mean, and that's fine. I mean, Shane, Shane is actually a, a friend of mine, and I'm going to be helping with his uh, his governor because he's running for governor of Georgia um, this next election. So so next year. So um, but yeah, I mean, I can totally see where you're coming from on that and how you're talking diplomacy. Now, but I think I also disagree ultimately. And, and I think I was wrong when I said this in the past that the uh that it's a lesser the well that like well we talk about lesser of two evils but like there's also a desire to say that the, the parties are the same mm -hmm. and i think that if there's anything that has put a, that to a, like made that libertarian statement a lie has been the, the year of lockdowns and the pandemic and the way that red states governors handled the pandemic and the way republican policies were handled versus democrat policies democrat mm -hmm. governors um, I do not believe that you can say with a straight face, you can, you can try that, uh, but I don't believe you that they're both the same because the, the pandemic has put to put that uh, to the test and shown it to be completely false. Uh, so if you want to say it's a lesser of two evils, fine, but you know, would I rather have you know, my toe cut off or my arm cut off, I would rather have my toe cut off, you know, and the, sometimes yeah. those are the decisions that we have to make in yeah. life, whether we like it or not. Yep. But um, the way it works in today's culture too, is the, the political parties are moving. They're just moving left. They're moving more and more left. Right. I mean, we have now Vernon Jones, who is going to run in the primary against, um, against Brian Kemp in Georgia who is, you know, the current governor. And Vernon Jones is a former Democrat um, that supported Trump in the last election. So he, he just switched over. And so you're taking people that are former leftists are moving into, into the Republican Party because the, the left has gone so far left, right? And so where does that leave libertarians when the Republican Party seems to be moving more left as well? Well, and think of this, there, there really is no fiscal conservative party. Uh, yeah. you, know, you, you know, and, and I say this because like, you know, if liber left libertarians are a slight majority of, the, G of the, the libertarian party, and I believe they are, I would say that probably a majority of left libertarians also advocate for a universal basic income. Like they were like left libertarians, the members of the libertarian party, I'll call them, we're jumping all down my throat last week because of a tweet that I posted about how the um, the labor shortages in the United States um, should put to bed the idea that people will still work if we have a universal basic income. 
Uh, and, you know, I had left libertarians from with LP stickers all over, you know, anarchist, you know, anarcho-capitalist stickers and stuff like that. People jumping all down my throat, you know, with the rainbow flag in their profile, you know, virtue signaling yeah. to the left as hard as they can um, about how wrong I was and how I don't understand economics. How this isn't real UBI, real communism has never been tried. <laughs> um, uh, and so there really is no fiscal conservative party at, in the United States at all. Republicans right. are not fiscally conservative. Conservatives are not fiscally conservative. The Libertarian Party is not fiscally conservative. And certainly the Democrat Party is not fiscally conservative. Oh, yeah. So in, in, in terms of like, you know, is there any real conservative movement or right wing party? Like, yeah, you could say something's right wing. That doesn't mean it's fiscally conservative. But I mean, you know, there's George Will, me, and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a good point as well, because yeah, the libertarian party does tend to cater to the left. I mean, I also think libertarian in general, and it's kind of libertarianism in general, um, just the mindset too, is you're so, and it's kind of goes along with the, you're not a real libertarian group, right? Like so many people say that. And I think, but it's like one slip up from a from a from a libertarian candidate and they will they'll jump ship i mean joe jorgensen made one bad comment during the last um last election and it was her her tweet on black lives matter um and and that was the one that really i think turned everybody away from her now i can tell you when i met her i talked to her in person i asked her point blank what she would do about antifa and she she really just said what what i'm doing right now and i'm like well, what does that mean <laughs> you know? and so Tifa's just an idea sarah yes that's true that's true that's true <laughs> so I, I i agree that the the republicans don't necessarily or not that the libertarians they tend to cater but the people in our movement they're so far they're so willing just to push people away right um yeah because, you know, again, a lot of them like to treat it as a social club rather than like an activist movement and an activist movement. I mean, the left is the best at that. They are so yes. good at, uh, at activism that and they call the right reactionaries for you know a reason, you know, not necessarily just because they react to everything, but also in part because, you know, conservatism is very much about, you know, conserving and preserving what they have while they lose slowly to the left. Yeah. And the majority of the country is heading left. Right. Yeah. And, you know, even including like you know, the, the MAGA movement, for example, right? So one, I, I really poked the national conservatives one day in the eye uh, and stirred up a hornet's nest when I said that national conservatism is just leftism, but goes to church on Sunday. Yep. And that really <laughs> stirred them up because I, you know, I had uncovered the rock and pointed the light in their face. And it was like, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they agree because it, it you know, the yeah. MAGA movement, to a large degree, although not entirely, I will say that there are, you know, still some fiscal conservatives amongst the MAGA people. And I have nice things to say about Charlie Kirk later, if you really want to make people angry. <laughs> uh, but, um, but the MAGA movement, I guess, uh, or, or the intellectuals of the MAGA movement, the national conservatives, right, they freely admit that they think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are correct on economics. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson famously came out and said, and this blows some people's minds, but he famously came out and said that the Republican Party should adopt Elizabeth Warren's economic plan that she ran on when she ran for president of the United States. Like they, they see that as a MAGA 
movement. They just, they don't agree with the left culturally, right? Which is yeah. why when I say they go to church yeah. on Sundays. So it's yeah. more of an authoritarian, you know, right wing, you know, it's, it's more like, I mean, I hate to, you know, be so pejorative, but it's more like the Taliban in mm-hmm. the sense that it's very theocratic authoritarian. And the only thing that's really right wing about it is that it's religious. It's not fiscally conservative and it's not, you know, it's not conservative in many of the ways that we typically think of as conservatism because national conservatism is more like a European form of conservatism. Whereas American conservatism traditionally has been more in line with cowboys and Indians, the wild, wild West, Mm. God, yes, gold, guns, freedom, limited government, you know, homesteading and individualism, whereas this European form of conservatism, which has infected the United States, is what, you know, they're calling MAGA conservatism or, you know, which is really more of a European style of conservatism. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Yeah, because you're right. It's, it is. And and that's the problem is, is then the social conservatives are the ones that are even, they're the ones that are almost standing up more now. Um, they feel emboldened. And it's crazy to me when I see social conservatives, you know, they just lost the election. Um, whether you want to admit it or not, you lost the election. Um, they do not want to admit it, by the way. They yeah. still think that it was rigged. So, and and I can say that, I mean, there were some oddities, but they never brought any, they never brought any um, evidence. There was no Supreme, real the evidence. Supreme that, Court, the conservative majority yeah. Supreme Court turned them down. Yeah. Yeah. There was no real evidence to show. So, but, but now they just lost this election and now they're literally out there saying, we don't want you in our party. We don't want you in our party. Like, you know, the radical Christian right always has this uprising every once in a while that wants to push LGBT members away when Donald Trump got more LGBT members to vote for him than any other well, um, Republican co- politician. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because now I can say something nice about Charlie Kirk. Uh, because <laughs> if you'll remember, there was a moment, um, I don't know if it was two or three years ago, when Charlie Kirk was giving a speech with a gay black conservative and the Groypers showed up en masse to ask them questions like, you know, is anal sex, how is, how is protecting anal sex, promoting anal sex, protecting conservatives, conservative values, blah, blah, blah. And freaking Charlie Kirk of all people got up there and talked about how he didn't think that the government's role should be into people's personal lives and that people can still be a conservative and be homosexuals. And yeah. a lot of the groypers like the Nick Fuentes characters and others, they've split off from the MAGA movement at large, you know, because they, they, you know, Michelle Malkin and others, right. They're out there banging the drums against the Trump movement because the Trump movement to, to some, to a certain large degree was like Trump not socially conservative you mm-hmm. know yeah remember donald trump standing up there yeah. with a big rainbow flag you think you'd see any yeah. other republican oh no for president doing something like that he didn't oh, care no. you know you know how many you know wives he's had and divorces he's had and things like that so you know some social social conservatives rightly saw that even though if they didn't agree with donald trump's personal lifestyle that they saw that he was a a, a bludgeon a blunt force tool against the left And I actually kind of agree with them on that. I think that, um, you know, to a large degree, many of the people in the turning point movement are more socially liberal than they are, than they are um, socially conservative. And those are the kind of people who are out there like me saying, go Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talking about that too, because that was part of the conversation that we had last Thursday um, after, after the show was um, talking about 
because we were talking about just how you um, interact with people, right? And I said, for me, when it comes to like the pronoun debate, I don't think that the first thing that you should do is disrespect somebody um, that you're having a conversation with. It kind of ends the conversation, right? And your perspective was a little bit different. Um, and you, you know, but I can't deny what you said because you also said, um, you know, you wish we could be nice and play nice and everything like that, but that's just not the way things work. I think I, I went back and I looked at that and you're right. It doesn't work being nice in a lot of ways. I mean, Donald Trump showed that you have to have the hammer and the nail to go out there and actually attack people um, and, and don't be afraid to offend people. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump was the first person who actually accomplished some conservative goals, some libertarian goals since, I mean, God, Calvin Coolidge. I mean, if we're being, if we're being technical and literal here, Donald Trump was the very first Republican president to advance conservative and libertarian goals and, and to win, to actually mm -hmm. to stop losing slowly to the left and to advance conservative principles and win in a long time. And he was not nice. He had a lot yeah. of mean tweets, a lot of mean <laughs> yeah. tweets. But, yeah. but what, I, what I mean there is, is for example, like why I offer you the common courtesy of referring to you yep. as the pronouns that you prefer, or Caitlyn Jenner, she prefers. Mm -hmm. It's because you Kate, and Caitlyn Jenner are not the type of transgender activist who are going to put me in jail if I refuse to do so. But if a transgender activist wishes to change the speech laws so, uh, to undermine the First Amendment, well, then the first thing that I'm going to do is to zing them where it hurts. The yep. first thing that I'm going to do is to go out there and defy them in such a way so as to subvert their intentions. Now, uh, do I care really about, like the, again, their personal lifestyle? Not really, but I know it bothers them. And I know that in order for me to accomplish my goals of getting them fighting with shadows and fighting a battle that doesn't matter, uh, that, that ultimately will waste their time and their, and their, their kinetic energy, um, I'm going to do that, even if they don't like me, but I don't care because I know they don't like me and they don't care about my freedoms. And that fight is a fight to the death. Yes. Yeah. And in that regards, I agree. And um, now I'm obviously fighting a little bit different fight than you as well, because I'm not only fighting for libertarian principles. I'm also trying to fight, you know, ultra conservatives perspectives on the ultra you know, the radical trans movement. I have to show that I am not who these people are. So I have to almost play nice to show that I'm, I'm not that, you know? You have to defy the expectations and you have to kind yes. of like overly emphasize like, you know, your kindness and like willingness to get along so that they are disarmed and you're able to get past their defenses. Yeah, I see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I can I can argue, you know, on the basis of religion with those same people using logic and and expectations. But, you know, very few people that are called, you know, transphobic and whatever really are. But going back to the conversation about, you know, Caitlyn Jenner and stuff, I know you had mentioned that um, even the Republican congresswoman that was on your show she said that she wouldn't vote for Caitlyn Jenner if it was between her and Gavin Newsom. Now, isn't that the same thing that the right has always hammered the libertarians for saying that we won't vote if it's not somebody that we, we, we respect or, you know, that holds our values? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I mean, like, here's the thing. That's kind of why, like, that's why Caitlyn Jenner's campaign is good because it kind of like, it, it, 
reveals people's inner hypocrisies and and it it, sh it it requires people to have to live up to their stated principles and like Saul Alinsky said if you hold try if you force someone to live up to the standards that they've set for themselves and for others you can kill them with this because no one can ever live up to the standards or expectations if they have high ex if they have high standards no one can ever live up to their own standards so yeah, it's yeah. like um, you know when you read rules for radicals Saul Alinsky talked about how you can kill someone with this because if someone says, you know, I'm going to respond to every single letter that everybody writes me, well, you can bankrupt them. Just send them a billion yeah. letters and so, and so that they have to live up to their the, the standards that they've set for themselves. And, and you know, again, those little, those little realizations, it may not change that person. That person may not, you know, ever change their mind. Mm -hmm. but, a person who's, but a person who's listening, maybe there's a person out there who, who's a fan of them, or maybe he's on the fence and hears that, uh, that hypocrisy and says, wow, that really opens up my eyes because I'm seeing something here that this is really not, that this person speaks about principle, but they don't uh, live up to the principles that they stand for. You know, I think one of the reasons we really loved Ron Paul is because he actually lived up to the standards that he set for himself. Yeah. And so we were all shocked that there was a politician who actually lived up to their standards. But, you know, in the end of the day, you know, at least for the time being, being, it was less about Ron Paul and more about the movement he inspired and the people who were watching him and listening to him and changing their minds based on what he was, you know, saying and doing. So, you know, again, I don't focus too much like, yes, it's good to see that hypocrisy. But remember, there might be a person out there who, because I asked that question and exposed that hypocrisy, there's somebody out there who was impacted by it and was like, wow, that really opens up my eyes. So that's kind of how I look at things, but that's because I look at things in, as like a producer, kind of a, you know, pro, you know, entertainer kind of a, of a mindset. Yeah. I'm looking at the, what is the audience thinking? You know, yeah. like if I bring someone on my show, I'm not thinking about what the person that I'm interviewing is thinking. I'm thinking about what is the audience thinking, right? And yeah. that's a different, that's a different kind of way of looking at things. Yeah. Which is why you always talk about everybody in Jefferson City being angry about me being on the show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to spend some political capital to, to, to have you on and to introduce you in the way mm -hmm. that I introduce you and to speak to you the way yeah. that I speak to you. It, it definitely... I, I, I have debit, I have to take, you know, I'm taking debits, right, on, on people, on the goodwill that the people yeah. of Jefferson City have towards me. But, you know, I've, I build it, I've built up enough capital to be able to spend it in such a way because I think it's, you know, again, it's going to pay in dividends in terms of, you know, future people. You know, somebody sent me a message. God, I wish I had the piece of paper here. Really nice text message. They said they're 12 and 14 year old boys you know, or in the morning and they're like, turn on Austin, turn on Austin. They want to listen to the show. So, you know, that's inspiring to me because I think, yeah. wow, you know, young people like this content and they like to hear it and they want to hear it. And so, you know, to be able to impact the future, you know, younger generations, like that's, that's great. So when they're turning on these 12 and 14 year old boys, they're hearing someone like you who they agree with on policy, talking about Caitlyn Jenner, who we agree with in policy. And maybe they're going to be like, you know what? I look up to Austin. He doesn't care what Caitlyn Jenner does, right? Like, I, I don't really care what Caitlyn Jenner does. It doesn't affect me in a, in a negative way that, you know, because they have the same values ultimately that I do that yep. allows us to live and let live, you know? Yep. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what we need to do. And that's again, why I'm out here. That's why I do what I do because I want to effectively change perspectives of what even, you know, the, the social conservatives have of people like me, people like, I mean, people don't, some people, most people know I grew up conservative. Um, my whole family is conservative. 
Um, so I didn't go, I mean, I was a big Ron Paul supporter. I just couldn't support him on foreign policy. And then after serving time in the military, I realized that we just need to bring the troops home. And that's kind of, kind of my path to libertarianism. Um, so I'm not one of these people that has come from the left. And it's amazing to watch when you see people that are red pilled from the left and it's like, they get so much more hate from the left because and it almost makes people, it's to make, and again, this is more of a Alinsky tactic as well. It's to make other people afraid to leave their movement because they are so just, they can't, I mean, they're angry that they lost that person. So that's really why they go after them. I don't see as much hate because I was never in their movement. Yeah. See that's, and that's interesting, but there's also kind of like another counterfactual to that where like, if a left winger leaves the, the democratic party and so like that, and then all of a sudden they come out and they start speaking for conservative values, they're going to have an awesome career. Right. So it's yes. like Candace Owens is the perfect example, right? She was on the left. Now she's on the right. And now she's a superstar celebrity, right? Like uh, a, a lot of the, like Ariel Scarcella, you right, your buddy. She, yeah. My buddy. Right. Like, like, <laughs> like she is, you know, she's become a celebrity because of her speaking out against the left, yep. even though she was a leftist, right? Yep. My, like my brother is red pilled now. So it's like, you know, and yeah. he was the left liberal and stuff like that and a gay man. And he's, you know, he's now out there like talking about how crazy the left is because yep. as a gay man, he's being told that he's no longer allowed to have his sexual preferences. Yeah. And, and because he's, he's, is he cis because he's white and he, he identifies as the gender he was born with. Does that make him cis? Yes. So he's a cis gay white male. Yeah. Right? So he's like lowest on the totem pole and on the comes on the oppression list. Right. So he's like, he's only like slightly oppressed because he's gay, but he's a white man, cis male. So then he's now, you know, he's now not as oppressed as, you know, a oh, yeah. person of color, right. Trans <laughs> by person of color, right. At the very lowest end of the totem. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, well, that was, I think, uh, there was something yesterday Ariel even just posted it was like well I guess I'm not gay anymore because that's exactly <laughs> what it was something like you can't be gay if you're not on the left or you know and it was like um Rob <laughs> I remember so it was Rob Smith um who had said when uh when Biden had said if you don't vote for me you're not black he did a TikTok video and he just looks he goes well I guess I'm white <laughs> <laughs> and he's in the same boat he's a black gay male um that's a conservative so there's a lot of us out there who are trying to push culture and trying to get conservatives back on the right side of the culture war and it's working to an extent but it's still there's a lot of people there there the social conservatives are still pushing hard for it and you're seeing a surgence with people like marjorie green and 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 stuff like that who really just wants to be a child in, in dc right <laughs> yeah but i mean here's the thing you know to to some degree you know on a, on a policy perspective i probably agree with marjorie taylor green more than i you know agree with uh, alexandria Ocasio cortez i mean oh, yeah i may not care for marjorie taylor green's tactics but what she's doing is effective whether we like mm -hmm. it or not right she's she's in the headlines and she's doing something in a way that's that's you know putting her front and center. She's she's not as crazy I think as some people would have us believe. And you know, I, would I rather have Marjorie Taylor Greene's policies in charge of the country or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's policies? I would much rather have Marjorie Taylor Greene's policies in in into the country. So you know, sometimes we can also be kind of um, you know because we personally dislike someone, 
you know, me, right? Doesn't yeah. mean I wouldn't have made an awesome presidential candidate, <laughs> right? Uh, you may not personally like Austin Peterson, but you could say Austin's policies would have been better than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's policies, right? So yeah. sometimes we, you know, we allow these personality things to get in the way of us making reasonable decisions on, you know, what's a worthwhile strategy and what's not. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, again, is she cuckoo? Maybe, but, um, you know, she's, you can't say she's not effective. No, you're right. She has gotten her name. It's, you know, marketing strategy, right? She has mm-hmm. gotten her name out there enough, but has she gone too far? Has she gone too far outside of the MAGA wing where they're going to, where, where she can't get support from the same, you know, social, socially liberal um, Republicans, she never has to here's the thing she you know she only has to represent her constituents right so as a representative i mean would she ever be president of the united states you know absolutely not but i mean you know could she represent her constituents to a degree sure but you know there's there were some problems with like how she was elected and the who who ran in the race there were three people and it was kind of like a you know i don't remember how the winner take all thing went but i just remember seeing like people like eric erickson and other conservatives like jonah Goldberg and others who were, you know, put off by her behavior because mm-hmm. to a degree, those people believe in, in uh, what you call, um, what's it is acceptability politics, or there's like, it's respectability politics, okay. right? Like you have to be respectable, like they, you know, and that's, that's important for them. Whereas, you know, with Donald Trump, it's, you know, it's not respectable, right? It's, it's very lowest common denominator, very slimy, you know, lowest common denominator attacks, but you know, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me as much because that the left has been doing that for the longest time. The left are the sleaziest, slimiest of the slime balls. Antifa, leftist activists, yes. you know, left-wing anarchists, anarcho-communists, anarcho-syndicalists, they are the slimiest of the slime balls. So, you know, do I, does it bother me tactically that we have some right-wing slime balls that are crushing Antifa's skulls? Mm-hmm. Not really. Right? Do I do I love the Proud Boys and, and stand by everything that they believe in and fight for? No. But do I laugh when base stick man, you know, crunches their skull with a two by four? Yeah, I do, because mm-hmm. I see that I see that as self-defense. I see them as acting in a way in a manner that is um, pushing back against violent extremism. That is that is the majority of violent extremism that happens in this country happens on the streets and it goes unreported and it happens by left-wing activists in places like portland and otherwise all you see in the news is some some white boy mass shooter like dylan roof you know will be talked about for hours and hours and hours and there'll be books and books and books but when you know when a when an asian store owner gets their skull crushed kicked in by a white you know transgender left-wing activist with green hair it doesn't make the news no no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's the same exact as the narrative. I mean, just even the narrative on Israel right now. Yeah. Like, I was, I was going to be with my next segue. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, because it's Hamas can shoot 2,000 rockets and one rocket goes over the border and, from, from Israel and it's Israel attacked mm. Palestine, you know, and that's how it's framed because the, the media has this narrative and that's part of the issue is the media and leftist politicians, they get so much credit from the mainstream media that they will, they, they, they basically perpetuate Antifa and organizations like that into doing what they're doing because it's actually helping them in a lot of ways, even though, you know, Antifa, I mean, but then it ends up biting them in the ass because I mean, look at, who is it? 
the Portland mayor, his house has been like he got doxxed and by Antifa and they want to they've put like hits out on him and stuff. So well and like on the Israel Palestine conflict, it's like there are very few people who come at that view from an unbiased perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. There are very few people who apply a consistent philosophical worldview to the Israel versus Palestine conflict. And it's almost impossible to do so simply because the factors that have have bred that conflict come from so many different angles there's you know there's uh human rights questions that are involved there is um you know nation state that like the 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 right of conquest comes in right like one big you know challenge you know in libertarian philosophy is the right of conquest so for example if hamas you know is launching airstrikes into israeli territory Ultimately, you know, if they start that, con- let's let's say that Hamas started it, okay, and give the give the Israelis the benefit of the doubt here in this one, right? If that's the case, I think it's justifiable not only to launch a ground and air assault, but also to take territory back as recompensation. Libertarians yeah. have this concept of you know recompensation, right? So like you commit a crime against somebody, you should have to pay them back, pay restitution for your crimes to a degree. No. So so like you know those are you know, challenges of libertarian philosophy um, that, that, you know, are only one small facet in the, the, the broader machine, one gear in a broader machine of multiple different types of questions that are, um, that are at stake here. So it's, you know, unfortunately too, most people have a very surface level, both understanding and view of their, you know, most people don't have coherent fundamental you know philosophical worldviews or mm-hmm. if they do they didn't get they didn't develop them on their own they were handpicked and selected and given to them as yep. a you know here's your fundamental philosophical worldview as inspired by the roman catholic church or as yep. inspired by ron paul libertarianism and you know whereas you know in order to really understand these kinds of things, you have to take a less orthodox approach and be willing to kind of like look at things from multiple different angles and step outside of your own, you know, worldview in order to kind of understand what the other side is thinking. But these are very complex things. And most people are just trying to put food on the table, Sarah. They don't yep. <laughs> yeah, I, no, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Because... We, can, we couldn't have this conversation on the radio in the morning, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Um, because, yeah, you're right. And that is one of the things about libertarianism is foreign policy and staying out of stuff. Now, I think if we push more that if, if we could push more right now, especially with the current conflicts and stuff like that, um, I think libertarians need to point out that if it wasn't for the U.S.'s funding in multiple ways, this wouldn't necessarily be it might not be happening. It wouldn't be happening to the extent that it is happening when you really look at what's going on in Israel. This is a proxy war, U.S. versus the U.S. We gave Hamas money. We give Israel money. And then we also, the Obama administration also gave Iran money who supplied these rockets. I mean, it's, it's, it's just this big web of intertwined, you know, U.S. policy that's over there. If we pulled a lot of that policy back, I think we could, you know, some of this would unravel itself and we could stand stand by and watch you know yeah it was kind of the same thing with the syrian conflict right where we were funding both sides right yeah you know and and depending on which administration is in charge 
they're going to, you know, pick a side based on how they, you know, their, their particular ideology or things like that. But you kind of have to accept that, right? Yeah. And, you know, you have to accept that, like, you know, certain circumstances are going to emerge based on who's in charge. And, you know, how do we mitigate the problems? I mean, we, we love as libertarians to just say, well, overarching the fundamental libertarian philosophy on this one is to pull all funding from all sides and just let yeah. them have it out and let it, let the chips fall where they may and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And I, and I think you should make that argument. You should make the Ron Paul argument up front. But then mm-hmm. after that, you're going to need a little Milton Friedman in there. You're going to yep. need a little bit of somebody to say, okay, but where, how do we go from where we're at to get to that point, right? You're going to need a stairs. You're going to need a bridge to get there in a sense, right? So that's, yep. the, that's the real libertarian challenge. Anybody yeah. can go and read all of Ron Paul's books on foreign policy, you know, foreign policy of freedom. Go, I highly recommend you do it. Read all his speeches in Congress or watch them on YouTube if you're lazy like me. And, um, and, and then, you know, once you've got the, the basis, then you need to go out there and you need to start to practice your theory and see yep. how well the rubber hits the road. Cause a lot of times it doesn't work out as well as you, you think it would, or there's even unintended consequences to the, to what you have done in enacting a libertarian policy that you better be prepared for, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think, um, I know a few ANCAPs uh, that, have said it's not gonna it can't happen overnight you have to do a phase policy into it um whereas but there's not i don't know and you might be able to answer is there any like strategy out there um, and books and stuff like that that comes down to how we can effectively do this because i know i mean marx laid it out perfectly in the communist manifesto where it's you have to you know enact a big state in order to take the big state away right so that's where communists run away the end state is still absence of state but you have to again you have to have a full authoritarianism before you can actually enact that withdraw from the state right but i like my my argument there is that like and this is just from my like understandings of of such when they said that is that like i just think that they were lying that like marx was just really just saying that so that they would centralize power and that they could be in charge really oh, yeah. so like but like um yeah there are some very practical i know some very practical very pragmatic end caps as a matter of fact you know there were you know some pretty hardcore anarchists that you know if they didn't work on my campaign i mean some of them were mega mega rich and gave me you know double max donors and they're like you know we're ancaps austin but we want to see you succeed because you know you're better than everybody else who's out there so like you know sir everybody's going to kind of have to pick what they can do based on what they have not not all ancaps are you know fedora you know neckbeard (laughs) basement dwellers it's just that's not the case i mean the one i mean maybe it's just the the consequence of like the life that I've lived, but all the ANCAPs that I knew were wealthy bankers and, you know, or like, you know, hedge funders or capitalists in New York city and like, you know, elite, elite, elites, yeah, you know, Bitcoin billionaires and stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but I knew, yeah. I mean, I, I knew my fair share of, you know, neck beards and hairy bros. Cause I, <laughs> you know, I started out on the streets in New York city for Ron Paul, 2008. And so I, I met a lot of friends that way. And that's where I come from for sure. I'm not a Bitcoin billionaire, but um, it's, it's, um, everybody kind of has to like choose their own strategy, but like, if I could say like, you know, effective and caps, you know, I think Spike Cohen does a good job. Right. Yeah. Um, Dave Smith, right. These are the obvious ones, right. Yeah. That are like 
yeah. out there who make really good and cap arguments and can affect and are affecting the culture positively. I mean, have you seen Dave on Joe Rogan? I mean, he kills. I, it. I haven't watched that one yet. No, but I, and I, I, I'm a big fan of his. I'm also a big fan of, I mean, Spike is, he, he puts things, things into great perspective as Eric well. July, you yeah. know, these, you know, there's, but again, like this is a handful and like, we really, we really need more. I think, and this is my beef. This is my complaint is that my thing is, is that I feel as if, like maybe it's just the zoomer generation and I'm just like a geriatric millennial, but like they haven't done their homework. Right. Like they yeah. have, like I get, you know, I, it's fine to say, Austin, you're not a libertarian because you want to nuke Japan, but you better have more historical knowledge about like the closure and closing years of world war two. And like, you better have read the, like, the arguments that Oppenheimer made and, you know, that mm -hmm. Dwight Eisenhower made and the nuclear committee made, you better have done your homework. It's fine. If you, you know, if you're Scott Horton, like Scott Horton effing, he hates me, right? Yeah. That's fine. He can, because Scott Horton has done his homework, right? But too many like baby libertarians out there want to like call out the big dogs and they haven't done their homework, you know, it's yeah. fine, you know, like, but like people are like, well, there's a strong populist streak that exists, not just in the Republican Party, but also in the libertarian movement where it's like, ah, don't talk down to me. You're like you're talking yeah. so it's so elitist. He thinks he's so cool and all that stuff. But I mean, like, you know, libertarianism is not egalitarian. It's yep. fine if you are. But I mean, you know, capitalism and, you know, I, I would fall a little bit closer on that Ayn Randian spectrum of like, you know, merit and frankly we don't have a lot of libertarians out there that you know are behaving meritoriously such as to justify their very angry and hostile tweets right that they yeah. jump all over right <laughs> they brigade but it's kind of like dude it's like you know it's the doofus brigade in a way and it's embarrassing because like you know conservatives and liberals see that and they're kind of like you know this movement is still very much in its infancy and i wonder if we'll ever get out of it yep Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I was just waiting for the, the chat to light up when you mentioned your uh, bombing of Japan. So <laughs> <laughs> no. I know that uh, that was a big, uh, big topic, right? <laughs> it was it was because it, it I think it and I, and I pushed I certainly pushed the um, the envelope on that one because I thought it was a, it was actually a perfect example to demonstrate what I was talking about here, where it's like, people really obviously haven't done their homework. Because like, with the non-aggression principle, for example, like when I ran for president as libertarian, like, you know, it would have been in my best interest to not talk about the NAP or the criticisms of the NAP, just tell libertarians what they want to hear, just like any other good politician. But I wasn't a very good politician. I, I criticized <laughs> the NAP. And I, I would offer libertarians real world scenarios where, you know, but in, in criticizing the NAP, what I would do is provide them with a series of, you know, ethical questions to make, to ask them what decisions they would make, you know, kind of like the trolley scenario, right? You know, kill one mm -hmm. to save five. But when you, when you start to do that with people and you, you call it war game, when you war game these people yep. with the non-aggression principle, you'll find that, you know, the most hardcore nappers will violate the NAP, you know, like it's, it's, oh yes. One yep, time, like, I was giving a speech at Porkfest in New Hampshire, you know, all peace and love and hippie commune kind of a thing. And because I said and went out there and debunked the idea that 9-11 was an inside job, some a big napper, a person who believed the non-aggression principle tried to fight me, like physically mm -hmm. tried to initiate force against me and had to be held back because I had offended them so greatly. So it's like, you know, 
I, that's why I pushed the nuking of Japan thing, right? Yeah. Do I, do I, you know, do I really love the idea of, of using nuclear weapons? Absolutely. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's but, the clip though. That's what, you, that's the but, clip. But right? I love, but I love being alive and, 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 you know, in context, yeah. you know, would I do absolutely anything to save, you know, my own life, you know, to save the lives of my family, to save the lives of the people that I love. Yeah, I think I absolutely would, you know, go up, you know, if I believe that something's an existential threat, right? If aliens came to planet Earth and were vampires and wanted to kill us all, you know, would we give them equal rights? No, we would, you know, we'd nuke them, right? So it's kind of like, once you start wargaming libertarians ideas and scenarios, things can fall apart rather quickly. Yeah. And it, you know, it just, it shows that many people have not done their base homework. So, you know, libertarians are, have gotten most of their ideals from memes. Memes are a really poor way to, you know, yeah. And that's, and that's kind of what happens in the current culture that we, we're in. It's people get their information from social media instead of actually going and research their own stuff. Um, you know, they don't actually listen to the news. What mainstream media doesn't give you the news anymore. Anyways, they give you their side of the news. Um, one of the, one of the comments, and this is true, says foreign policy thing is often a one dimensional argument from libertarians, which is absolutely true because not a lot of libertarians want to accept that, again, going back to Israel, this wouldn't have happened under Donald Trump. They waited. They waited till Trump was out of office. They were scared of fire and fury. They would have never done this. And as much as I don't, um, I think that he lollygagged on Afghanistan and, and, and pulling some of the troops out. I agreed with Tulsi on a lot of her issues when she talked about pulling troops out. But I think, um, one area where he was strong on was foreign policy still. I can't correct. completely yeah, dismiss he, he everything. He, I, I honestly believe, not single-handedly, but in conjunction with his ambassadors and the people that he appointed, you know, uh, and other, I can't remember the name of the, who was the gay ambassador that he had? At, um, Grinnell. Yes, Grinnell uh, and, and others. Who and also is running for governor of California as well. Right, right. And, and so... Um, I do think that uh, you know Donald Trump could have been a positive force for bringing uh, that this conflict to a speedier end. Mm -hmm. But because people like Joe Biden are more trepidatious, because they're more tentative, and probably because they realize that a significant portion of their base does not support Israel, uh, mm -hmm. they have to be more careful. They have to operate on tenterhooks. They have to yeah. be more care. They have to you know gauge there which the establishment is pro-israel of the democratic party by the way yeah um, but the base is not uh and so therefore that's why you see this kind of like pussyfooting around if i could use a phrase yeah. uh, on joe biden's part of of bringing this conflict to a close or at least helping to bring this conflict to a close and so again you know difficult scenario but i think you know that's why that's what made Trump a lesser of two evils, the foreign policy question yeah. where the rubber hits the road. You know, when the when the bodies start getting stacked, you know, you want a Donald Trump versus a Joe Biden, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and that's that's part of it, too, um, is not just their base, but right now the administration is trying to negotiate again with Iran. And that is a big issue, because when you're talking about Iran, you're talking geopolitics. Iran has a big influence with the Palestinians and Hamas. Um, that is more their militant wing when it comes to, you know, um, fighting Israel. So absolutely. I, I think, I mean, we could talk geopolitics all day as well. Um, 
but it's it's kind of a mess and there is some nuance when, again when it comes to talking libertarian policies and how we have to go about um you know working with foreign policy you know yeah. foreign agencies and stuff you like know, that just like like my view when it comes to like you know the bible for example like i am a cherry picker like mm-hmm. i really like having unorthodox approaches to policies and ideas i i just mm-hmm. like I, I remember you know when i was a baby libertarian i was all about i loved ron paul for his consistency but as i like grew up and started to look at the world through a different lens I started to recognize that there was actually some merit in inconsistency because you could be consistent and be consistently wrong, right? Like you could say Bernie Sanders is consistent, but he's mm-hmm. consistently wrong. Uh, yep. and, and, and so therefore that means that I want to take what I like and discard what I don't like. I want to take what I think works and discard what I think doesn't work, right? So when it comes to the approach for advancing liberty or libertarian ideas, I want to advance what I think works and I want to discard what I think doesn't work. And as I see somebody there in the chat is saying like, what are your criticisms of the NAP? Like Mm -hmm. that's kind of like one of my big bugaboos that's like, I think that doesn't work. The libertarians love it. They think it should be the centerpiece of their philosophy. There are some libertarian philosophers who are trying to make it to, to say that the non-aggression principle is axiomatic, meaning it is self-evident. And let me tell you how wrong you are about that, because if it were self-evident, it would be the type of thing that anybody could understand and accept and could and could um, hold on to. But once it's once it once you start to apply even the basis level of scrutiny to the non-aggression principle, it starts to fall apart, which is why. I want to revolutionize the libertarian movement. I want to revolution. I'm a, I'm a revolutionary in the revolutionaries in that we should, in my opinion, have property rights as the central basis of libertarianism. And the central thesis of libertarians should be, I own my life. I own my body. I should be able to do with it as I see fit, provided I harm no one else. That also extends to you. Mm-hmm. Let's, and then let's grow liberty starting from there. But when you when you make the centerpiece of libertarianism a non-aggression principle, then you already set up the debate in terms of aggression and you set up like an adversarial role between the two parties. Right. Whereas with property rights, it's not adversarial at all. I own my life. You own your life. Right. But a non-aggression principle is is simply is trying to make this very complex sort of like you know, conflicting view of the world and oppositional view of the world as the centerpiece of our philosophy, which is why I think that fundamentally it needs to, you know, it needs to go back to the drawing board. Okay. That that makes sense as well. Um, I've never really thought about it like that because I've always, I've pushed um, the non-aggressive principle as well. I think. Um, I have too. Yeah. Because but I, I like what you're saying about personal property. Um, I almost wonder if they could, if the two, the two coincide, right? Because um, the non-aggression principles means I won't, you know, I won't, you know, go onto your property. I won't attack you. I won't do stuff like that. Um, but that's an interesting concept. Right. So it's like the non-aggression principle, like the, there's been some really good um what's the word intellectual like 
posited, like, well, how would I describe this? There have been some, some academic papers that have looked at the non-aggression principle and have made the argument for why the non-aggression principle should be the centerpiece of libertarianism. And then there's others who like uh, Matt Zwolinski and others who have written at Cato why the non-aggression principle falls apart. Because like, for example, like, um, you know, a, a completely strictly fundamentalist view of it would say that it's never okay to enact small harms for larger goods. But if you drive a car, then you are showing that you don't believe that because you are doing a small harm to the environment mm-hmm. by polluting to do a much larger good in order. So like, I, if I don't, if I, if nothing, if you can do absolutely no action at all that violates my property rights in a sense, then you could never, then all of industrial capitalism, you know, would have to be foregone, right? So in my my view, like this is this is what really pisses people off, but you just, the non-aggression principle is anti-capitalist in my view, because industrial capitalism pollutes. And therefore, if you are never allowed to pollute, never, ever, ever allowed to pollute, then you could not drive a car. You could not, yeah. you know, do anything that causes emissions because if I don't consent to breathing in the pollution from your vehicle, yeah, then uh, you violated my non. You violated my nap, and we have a problem, right now. You yeah, know, can you pollute ever all that you want? No, but I mean, can people pollute a little bit? Yeah, yeah, and that is, yeah. I I, I mean, I've never, I've never I've never carbon ne- dioxide. <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never thought about it like that. And you're absolutely, absolutely correct when you're talking about, yeah, it, it almost is anti-capitalist. Um, because again, industrial capitalism requires some form of pollution. Now you have a responsibility to, you know, to clean up after yourself, right. To not pollute too much. And like, you know, there may be actually in the future, I mean, this is why like Milton Friedman, for example, argued that like, um, What's the carbon, the regulator carburetor, or what, what is it on your car? The, ca- that, the catalytic converter. The catalytic converter, for example, yep. that that should be requirements for vehicles going forward because we're talking about polluting the air that we share. And until the day comes that we aren't sharing the same oxygen on another planet, right? Like, you know, <laughs> that is a small harm, meaning forcing you, violating your nap by forcing you to have a catalytic converter in your vehicle. That's mm-hmm. a small harm. That creates a larger good. So it's like, you know, the question is, at what point do the ends no longer justify the means, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because, and that gets down into a lot of the deeper questions, stuff like that. Where does that end, right? Like, does it, does it come down to, you know, seatbelt laws and shit like that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. But the question is, is how much of a positive externality of danger are you allowed to inflict upon the community? Like drunk driving, yeah. big liber- and cap problem, right? So, yeah. you know, if you know, you should be allowed to drunk drive if you don't actually harm anyone, says the anarcho-capitalist, because the only thing that matters is the actual harm that you do to someone else. But how much risk are you allowed to take with my life? Exactly. You know, that's the question is, is like, you know, I didn't sign up to get on the road with people who are out here who are swerving all over the place, you're, pu- you're pushing, you're putting a negative externality on me yep. and you're making, you're, you're forcing me to take risks that I had not signed up for. Right. So, so that's kind of like, you know, that's kind of the, along the same vo- the lines, which is why 
I prefer to be a minarchist and to take a, a, a heterodox view rather than orthodox view of my ideas. Yeah. Because I just realized that the world is messy. Israel and Palestine is not going to get solved in my lifetime. And I'm just looking for more ways to expand liberty to get the best results that we can get for everybody and myself, yep. you know, within the next 30 to 50 years and beyond. And that's all we can do. Like, um, yeah. And then it is kind of, it circles back to your, uh, your first point when you said, unless you're actually living in the woods by yourself, right. Mm-hmm. Then it's ben, your, your, Benjamin your, over, sorry to interrupt uh, Benjamin yeah. over in the chat had a really good point and a good, like he brought up, he says the nap is the logical conclusion of property rights. Like Rothbard said, all rights are property rights, but then remember that if that is true, let's say that that's correct then that means that uh, the non-aggression principle is parasitic on a view of property rights, meaning mm-hmm. that without a view of property rights, the non-aggression principle can't exist. Because right. the question is, what are you aggressing against? You're aggressing against private property, which means that the non-aggression principle is not the central thesis of libertarianism. Right. It's the just a branch. The central thesis is property rights. Yeah, it's just a branch. It's a branch of libertarianism, not like, yeah, and and property rights. Because like I said, property rights hinge on non-aggression principle as well. But um, what was I going to say? Yeah, and I, I I agree. Um, I actually am a minarchist myself. Um, which is something. Statist. Where, yeah, <laughs> that's where, and that's and that's the thing is people call us a status. If that's. Unless you're a real, well, unless we you're, are, unless we you're are technically status though, <laughs> which is true because yes, you believe in a small, small government that is there to protect your property rights. Right. Um, and we, you can't be a real libertarian. I guess Steffi could be a real libertarian because she's got red hair, but <laughs> ginger libertarians. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that, that actually reminds me, I kind of, I, I gotta go cause Steffi and I have an appointment, but um this okay. has been fun, Sarah. Absolutely. Um, we will do this again. Um, we need to continue these conversations like this um, here. I agree. Twitter, and and everywhere. I'll definitely be having you back on the show again. And, you know, we, you know, I love the podcast format because we can actually have longer conversations. So absolutely for you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where can everybody find you? AP for Liberty okay. uh, everywhere. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everything. AP for Liberty everywhere. Okay. And everybody make sure you go, uh, go subscribe to this channel. Um, Cause I am going to start doing a lot more libertarian stuff than just like the social trans issues as well. So um, this is going to be more of a political show. So thanks again for coming out. Have a lovely day. You too. Tell Steffi I said hi. (laughs) I will see you later. See ya.